Hi, welcome to the Mama Advocate Podcast. This is a safe place for adoptive and special needs mamas to feel less alone and find community amidst their unconventional journeys. Here, you're going to find authentic conversations for me and my guests who are parenting fully in the weeds with you. Our goal is to empower and encourage you to be the best mama you can be as you advocate for your people. Friends, because the weekend after I met him at our little pancake breakfast that we had for our new year, new year's day, uh, my son started having very seizure like activity and I was kind of panicking, but I knew from his advocacy, um, what they do and how they do it and how wonderful it is. And so I called them up right away and they were able to help us out. And I'm so grateful for that. And it turns out my son was not having seizures, but it was so good to just have that connection and, um, to have his wonderful tools. And so I wanted him to come on and kind of share his story and their journey and how it's become this business that is so convenient for parents. And um, yeah, I'm just super excited about it. So Brett, you have the floor. Kind of introduce yourself. Tell us about your family. Wow. Okay. So um, (laughs) my daughter, Sophie, started having seizures at about five years old. And we, you know, the first couple caught us really off guard. We didn't know what we were looking at. We had no experience with this. Um, We're just looking at our daughter playing on the bed and then suddenly her her speech is stuck. She's stuck on a letter, um, can't get a word out of her mouth. And then she has this, you know, really panicked look on her face. Um, And the first time we thought she was kidding. And then the second time, not so much. So we had a few of those events um, called 911 each time. And then finally the fire department said something like, hey, stop calling us. She's having seizures. You need to go to a neurologist and, and get a handle on this. So we searched for you know any answers and we went to who we thought were the top docs. Um, being that we were uninformed and didn't really know, we went to the internet looking for doctors and Um, unfortunately we just went on a wild goose chase for about four years trying to figure out, um, who was actually right. Who's going to be able to help us. Everybody was contradicting each other. All the physicians were saying, oh no, that last doctor was wrong. Change the meds. This is the problem. And then the next doctor, same story. So we finally were fortunate enough, enough to, um, get a a really high quality MRI at UCLA. And they determined that Sophie had this lesion on the side of her brain, um, you know, close to the size of a golf ball. And, and uh, that was the cause of the seizures. And at that point they determined that no medication was going to be able to stop those seizures. And it was definitely surgical. And that was going to be the answer. So we met with the surgeon. He scared the crap out of us. We had to really think about things and and um, it, it was really kind of a shock, you know, what do you mean you're going to open the side of my kid's head? Are you nuts? Um, there's got to be a pill. Where's the magic pill? So we shopped around. We went and visited some other surgeons to, to just to make sure that we were on the right path or were we going to be misled again? Um, and every, you know, world renowned surgeon kind of sent us back to UCLA where Dr. Mathern was. Um, we even met the the famous Dr. Ben Carson before he decided to run for president. He was still doing brain surgery at Johns Hopkins. And he said, you guys met with Gary Mathern at UCLA? That's the guy to go to. So that kind of confirmed it. We went back to UCLA to the doctor that scared us uh, a 
few years prior. And he just sat there with a grin on his face, smiling with too much confidence and basically said, I knew you'd be back. So skip ahead, brain surgery. Um, and from the minute they started the procedure and released some of that pressure, um, the EEG just corrected itself and, and she was basically looking to be seizure free. This February 27th will be 15 years seizure free after surgery. Sophie's doing amazing, graduating college this year. And, um, and her future is pretty bright now. And, you know, the, the seizures are for Sophie um, are just a memory. I love that. I so love that's that. that part. Yeah. I love <clears throat> doing so well on that. Like that's all when you're telling it, it's so traumatic. Like I'm like living it with you. And then I'm like, wait, she's okay. She's okay. Does it feel traumatic every time you tell the story? Like, it does. And I end up you? telling that story, you know, quite frequently at work when I'm talking to patients and when they've been told from their doctor that they're here to see me to do some diagnostics prior to their surgical, you know, they have an opportunity for surgery and we're doing this evaluation on them. Um, they're usually super concerned and, and doubtful and skeptical and, you know, all that stuff, rightfully so. They're the parents, right? Um, and then I just seem to have this like ridiculous, calming way of saying, listen, I wouldn't tell you to do it if I wasn't going to do it myself. And I've been through this with my kid. And when I tell you that, you know, 30 hours later, basically, um, they sent her home with no bandages on her head and she was jumping up and down on the bed, talking on the phone. She didn't even grasp the fact that she had, you know, 30 some odd staples on the side of her head um, and had just had a chunk of her brain removed. It just was business as usual for her. We have an amazing timeline of photos. Um, about seven days after her surgery, we were kickboxing in the garage. 14 or 16 days after surgery, she was horseback riding again. And about a month afterwards, she was jumping off the, you know, off the deck into the pool five feet below. So she's, um, she was a pretty resilient kid and, and um, a lot of good support behind us and we made it through. Yeah. That's amazing. Like how quickly yep. she jumped back. I'm curious if you can kind of explain, I realized it kind of jumped ahead here, but can we even just start with like, what is a seizure? What's going on in the brain when that happens? Okay. So. I'm an advocate. I have no letters after my name. I'm not a doctor. So what I, uh, when I give opinion on my thoughts on epilepsy, seizures, autism, EEG, it's basically regurgitating the best content that I've gathered from the 300, you know, world-renowned neurologist, epileptologist, biomedical doctors, and neurosurgeons. So I take it all in. I decide who's got valuable content, who's wasting my time. I sort it out real quick and I store it. And that's what I use to talk and advocate. So when you ask me what a seizure is, I, I give, you know, a non wiki you know, uh, what is the WikiMed or something? Web, PubMed, whatever it is, this is non-medical version of it. So a seizure is basically, um, it's the definition is it's a bunch of hyperactive neurons working hypersynchronously. So that basically means an area of your brain is overheating and shooting off small sparks of electricity. And if it's left alone and not treated, those little that little area that's sparking 
uh, hyper, you know, hyperactively starts to recruit its neighbor neurons. And that's what that hypersynchronous means. And we don't want to let it go untreated because that little spike will then become multiple spikes. And then you've got an entire area of your brain firing off. And that's how we get to the big gnarly convulsive seizures. So my whole goal in life and, and how I've kind of reshaped what I do um, as far as why our medical procedures, I believe superior to others is because we are proactively looking for these micro subclinical seizures that are not detected by the human eye. They're especially not detected by the parents because when their child develops this cute little, you know, wrinkled smile or this cute little batting of their eyelashes, it's cute. It's cuddly. It's their kid. They're not realizing that's very possibly a symptom of an absent seizure. The people who usually detect it are the teachers, the teacher aides, uh, ABA therapists, people who are really working with your kids and in their face constantly. Um, and then they see a multitude of kids. So they're comparing and contrasting your child with everybody else that they know, where you are very focused on your own kids. So that's kind of, um, you know, what we do. Um, we, you know, we're trying to help people who have, you know, suspicion that there may be something going on like you had with your son. And then we get the CEG done that finds these micro seizures and spikes and, and then hopefully get them onto treatment before they manifest into the big seizures. So that's kind of how that works. Now let me back up and talk about that absence thing, because I think your viewers are going to want to hear this. So let me start with this analogy. When you hear the word volcano, most people anticipate it's this big mountain, the top has a hole in it, lava is shooting out of the top and pouring down the sides of the mountain, melting the village. And yes, that's a gnarly volcano, and that's like a 10 on a 1 to 10 on, you know, erupting volcanoes, a serious matter to be, you know, to, you know, to be worried about. But on the other hand, there are volcanoes in Hawaii, and I think we still have Mount St. Helens in Washington, and those are volcanoes. But you can climb up the side, go on a hiking trail, and walk up to the top completely safe. Until you peek in and look down into the crater, and you see the lava is actually in there just bubbling, but not significant enough bubbling to come out and erupt through the top. So that's like a one on the volcanic scale. Now let's talk about the seizures. When you go to the supermarket and you turn the aisle and you look and there's a guy on the ground and he's jerking around, his arms contorted, his head's turned, eyes rolling back, tongue sticking out, and you can clearly see this is a convulsive episode like I've seen on TV a bunch of times. That's like, you know, a generalized tonic-clonic seizure on a one to 10 on the seizure level. That dude's in trouble. That's a 10. Okay. I never want to see people get to that. Unfortunately, we do come across that, but again, we're trying to nip it in the bud and find it at a much earlier stage. And hopefully it never progresses to that level 10. Most of my patients are dealing with a seizure that is basically a brief pause in, in focus and concentration and language. They just freeze and it can be as short as one second even less, just pause and then come right back to it. 
but often they forget what they were doing. They lost their concentration. They forgot what they were saying. Um, I've seen adults, you know, be standing around um, doing something like this and saying, um, wait, what did I do with my keys? I just had my keys in my hand and I can't find them anywhere. Where, where are my keys? And, and that's basically suffering from absence seizures. Um, so, and those are a one on a one to 10 scale. And my answer to that is, unfortunately, standard of care in America after a seizure is about a 40 minute EEG if you're lucky enough to convince the ER doctor that you need it and you want it for your child or, or your loved one who's having the seizure. And rarely is that 40 minute EEG gonna reveal anything unless they're really fresh off the, off the seizure or having aftermath or another seizure during that hookup. They probably won't catch anything. And even if they did catch some little brief abnormalities, unless they caught a clinical seizure, they're not prescribing you meds or offering you any treatment. So it's basically like, yeah, you had a seizure. Yeah, your brain's a little overheated. Let's wait and see. No. But something tells me that most of you, if you smell smoke at home while you're sleeping, I I'm guessing you go to the phone and dial 911 and get the big red wagon in front of your house as fast as you can, right? I wouldn't wait till your roof is engulfed in flames before I dialed 911. So why would I wait for my child to have a convulsive seizure before actively seeking treatment when I know I've got abnormalities on the brain from this technology and this test? So that's kind of my story in a nutshell. Is it true that everybody's allowed to have one seizure and... One seizure, that is kind of true. Even now they'll say you could possibly have two. We get a lot of kids in our office who are, you know, high school age and yeah, they're coming in and they've basically been, you know, concussing themselves all year long. They go from football to soccer to lacrosse, water polo. These are all lovely sports, but they've got their level of violence and these kids are not protecting their noodle. And they're taking elbows to the head, head on head, bumping, hitting the ground when they fall. And there is no concussion protocol. And these kids aren't getting checked out. Um, but we'll get a kid in who's had, you know, two seizures. And that is not an epileptic brain. That is a kid who's not taking care of their brain. So I'm sure, I don't know what the age group is of your viewers, but some of us are old enough to remember the commercial on TV that shows a frying pan on the stove and it says, this is your brain. And then they drop a raw egg into the hot pan and it starts to sizzle up and it says, this is your brain on drugs. Well, we could revise that to the 2024 standards and say, this is your brain. And this is your brain when you play contact sports without enough protection and don't follow concussion protocol after an injury. And that is exactly what's happening. They're just bruising up and, and you know, and banging up that brain. Um, I'm sure there's, you know, issues in flow of CF fluid, um, which keeps that brain moving and thinking. And, you know, and the bruising and the swelling is also a big problem. So um, that, back to the, you can have provoked seizures. It can happen from an injury, an accident, um, even, you know, stress and undernourished and, and overheated and dehydrated can cause a seizure. 
And that is not you know, necessarily going to designate an epilepsy diagnosis. At that point, it's, it's a provoked seizure. Um, and they want to heal the brain, not treat it for epilepsy. Can epilepsy come from that? Like, can that? Oh, absolutely. That we, okay. So yes, we are finding, you know, that we have some, you know, 45 to 50 year old adults who are coming in and they're saying, you know, this is crazy. I just had my first seizure ever. And, you know, I never had a seizure as a young person, but you wouldn't believe how many motorcycle accidents, football accidents, you know, jujitsu, I'd been slammed on the ground. I was a bouncer in a nightclub, never a problem. Now here I am lying on the couch watching TV on Monday night and I have a seizure for no reason at all. And I'm scratching my head saying, mm, you don't think any of the problems that you've caused yourself in your lifetime could have led to this? And it's just, you know, common sense, but people just they just don't think about it that that carefully until they get their diagnosis. And then they start telling the doctor, oh, yeah, maybe because I used to ride a motorcycle with no helmet and I wiped out about 12 times. So this is this is an issue. And those those, you know, provoked seizures and the abuse to the brain can eventually cause epilep an epileptic brain and, and, and seizures. That's so fascinating. OK, so right now, a lot of our viewers listeners are special needs moms. And I know that statistics are higher that special needs kiddos um, are more likely to have seizures. Is that a correct statistic? Am I remembering that correctly? It is. So I think the CDC um, will say that kids with autism diagnosis or any other developmental delay um, are at about a 30% rate um, to have a seizure at some point in their life. We have very skewed data at our, at our practice because um, we don't work with the average doctor. We are working with, you know, the top biomed, you know, uh, functional medicine and wellness doctors across the country, you know, in addition to neurologists and epileptologists, but these functional medicine biomed docs, um, they really spend, you know, all their time trying to recover these kids and heal these kids. We don't believe that autism is a permanent diagnosis. If you look at the gut and treat it, look at the brain and treat it, look at the behaviors and treat it, you know, we see kids recover every day. It just, it happens. They lose the diagnosis. Um, those doctors get the roughest cases because the roughest cases tend to um, get the family to be more aggressive and chase, you know, the best care if they have the means. So the doctors referring to us are generally seeing some pretty impacted kids. Um, and at the same time, they're making the most strides in recovery. Um, and in that population, we bat about 65% abnormal EEG on kids with the autism diagnosis who come from our referral, you know, base. It's very high and prevalent. So the doctors that we work with are very encouraging to do a baseline screening of EEG, a uh, 24 hour minimum with video and monitoring. Okay. I'm going to get into that in like two seconds, but I want to ask you one more question. I remember we were chatting and I think you guys were explaining what you do to somebody. And I overheard you say something to the context of like, 
maybe they said something like, I don't know anybody who's had a seizure. And you're like, yeah, that you know of, like that there's this bigger percentage out there that we're just completely unaware of. And so I'm curious of what, what percentage is that? Um, Cause it's kind of like me with FASD. I'm like, yeah, you do. You know, a lot of people with FASD, you just don't know who they are and you know, you don't know their story, whatever. Um, and so I'm curious what percentage roughly you guys believe that is and not you, but the medical experts say that, 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 that is. And then also um, how do you, how do we as parents be on the lookout for that? Okay. So um, the scary thing is that one in 26 people has epilepsy. And when I talk to people, whether I'm trying to, you know, fundraise or I'm trying to explain to primary care doctors, um, you know, how prevalent it is and what they should be looking out for. And I just love it when, you know, a primary care doctor says, you know, believe it or not, I don't think I have any kids in my practice who have, you know, epilepsy. And I'm looking at this doctor and I'm thinking, do you have 52 kids as patients? You have two for sure. How could you not? There's just no way unless you're kicking those patients out of your practice. They're just not telling them about it or he's not looking into his notes deep enough. But clearly, you know, the world has accepted it and has announced that one in 26 has epilepsy. Um, the International League Against Epilepsy, which is kind of like our governing body that comes up with, you know, international statistics, they'll say that one in 10 people will have a seizure in their lifetime. But again, those are provoked, a lot of them. So not all of them are going to have epilepsy, but one in 26, they're getting the scarlet letter. It's crazy. Is it possible for someone to have epilepsy and they never be like the convulsing kind where everybody's like, oh yeah, you're having a seizure? Is that kind of how it Absolutely. goes on the radar? Okay. There are so many different types of seizures now that fortunately, um, the industry is finally evolving and they're getting rid of things that are archaic. So, um, so in our world, we rarely even work with neurologists. A neurologist is great, but he's like a handyman. He can do a little bit of concussion. He knows a little about MS and movement disorders. He has a little experience with autism. He's seen a couple of patients with seizures. Um, you know, and he may even have somebody with Parkinson's or Alzheimer's if, you know, he's an adult doc, but he's not a specialist in any of those, in any of those fields. Um, so I kind of don't do that. I don't use a handyman to put a roof on my house or repipe my home. I would call a plumber for that and a roofer for the top. So the same in, in neurology, I, you know, finding a patient who's got Parkinson's, I'm getting them to a movement disorder specialist. And that doctor does not want you in his office if you had a concussion or a seizure. He's a movement disorder specialist. He wants to see you for Parkinson's, MS, um, you know, things like that, myoclonic jerks, um, but not epilepsy or concussion. We work with epileptologists. And that is a neurologist who has gone back and done another two or three year fellowship in epilepsy training and reading EEGs, neurophysiology or clinical neurophysiology. So these are like the all-star, all-stars of the neurologists. Um, and that's who we work with because they get a much better handle on things faster. Um, it shortens the long and windy road and it makes it an expressway from initial seizure, diagnosis, treatment, and seizure freedom. That's our, that's our goal in life. A quick, fast path 
from first seizure to let's be seizure free rather than the long and windy road that my wife and I took with our daughter, where, you know, we tried 11 meds and nothing worked and everybody discounting the prior and previous advice. So, um, so that's kind of where we're at as far as that. Um, what did you ask me? I just got sidetracked. <laughs> uh, what should, what should parents be looking out for? Okay. So parents should be looking out for, um, well, here are the symptoms that we look for in kids with, you know, special needs. We are looking at, um, well, a language barrier or a language regression is almost always going to find me some abnormal activity in the left temporal region, which is where we house our language. Um, so a kid who's not speaking at six years old um, and not, you know, or not fully conversive or has regressed from well-spoken to having a hard time finding their words, that's an issue and that, you know, you need to fight for an overnight EEG for that kid, uh, whether your local hospital will do it, or if there is another service similar to what I do, whatever it is, you need to advocate and fight for that overnight EEG. Um, and you will have a fight because most places will offer you a 20 to 40 minute EEG and you will be absolutely wasting your time, torturing your child for the same amount of effort to hook him up for that hour. It's about the same amount of time to hook him up for 24 to 72 hours. Why would I do that? It's, um, it's just, it's not worth it. If you are going to drive all the way across town for food and your two choices are a drive through hamburger or a beautiful ribeye steak, and it's all free, I think you're pulling in for the ribeye steak. So, you know, majority of people have health insurance, even if it's state provided health insurance, you get a free steak at the end of your drive. You need to demand the overnight EEG, not the routine 40 minute. So there's that. Um, the symptoms, the symptoms are the language issue, poor sleep, mood swings. And I don't just mean, you know, Johnny's being a jerk today. I mean, he's playing a game on his iPad, calm, happy, and then all of a sudden smashes the iPad on the ground, self-injurious behaviors, pinching the sibling that they love, that's their best friend, something like that, that was just unpredictable and un no reason for it. Um, just a sudden, you know, explosive behavior mood swing. Um, incontinence, that's not of the norm. So your kid's potty trained, but at nine years old, all of a sudden he's wetting at night. Um, that's an issue. Unable to keep their focus and being told it's ADHD without any real in-depth testing. Um, that's always a problem. And if you do have an ADHD diagnosis and a doctor is going to try to put your kid on a stimulant, that may work. Great. I hope it does work. But you need an EEG before you start that stimulant, because if your kid is having absent seizures, those ADHD meds can launch the seizures into something you don't want. Um, and, and that's a problem. And a lot of people are doing a therapy, which I have to bash. I'm sorry, but it's called TMS or RTMS or TRMS. They keep changing the way that what they call it because it's just disaster after disaster. Um, and when the the word, you know, the, the publications come out, they change the name of what they're doing. But they're basically saying that they can cure developmental delays and autism by drawing the brain currents with huge magnets on either side of your child's head. We have seen more kids start seizures from that treatment than have any positive outcome. 
clients. So although they're they're using the platform that it's working great for soldiers, former vets and and wounded warriors who have PTSD, that's great. That's not autism. That's not, you know, a, a, um, a troubled brain. It's not a vaccine injured brain. It's not an inflamed brain. It's not an injured brain. It's it's a you know, it's a, a, a mental and a behavioral, a mental health and behavioral health issue. Um, and it may work for that, but we try to steer every child away from it. So those are basically the symptoms. And the people who tend to notice these symptoms are the teachers and the ABA therapists and, you know, the karate instructor or the soccer coach. They're the ones working with your kid. And when, you know, coach Bob says, hey, you know, your kid is a great soccer player. He always pays attention. He's so respectful, amazing manners. But lately I'm talking to him and he's just like tuning me out. Like I'm, I'm not on the same wavelength and I, I can't coach him like that. He's standing on the field. Everybody's running north and he's standing still at the other end of the field until he kind of figures out his where he is. And, and then he tries to like get back into the into the game and 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 that little pause and confusion that that's an indication that we need to take a better look. Okay, so won't you share with folks what okay it is you guys do, and how wonderful it is. Oh, how wonderful! So it's not wonderful you have to do it to your own kid. It's just wonderful if you can see it from afar. But yeah, um, so we do in-home video EEG monitoring. Generally, um, until about twenty years ago. Every patient who needed a long-term EEG was subjected to a three or four night stay at your local hospital. Um, not fun, not convenient. And over the past years, the epileptologists have determined that when we take a patient who is having an affected brain and put them in a hospital setting and try to record them to find out what their brain's function is on a normal basis, that's not normal. People don't live in a hospital. People don't smell pine saw all the time. People don't eat horrible food all the time. People don't have to ask a nurse to walk them to the potty every time they need to pee. So we don't capture great data in a hospital. We've also found that most patients that we deal with almost automatically come with the comorbidity of anxiety. If we are living in America today and we have a good functioning brain, we all have anxiety. There's not really a way around that. So when you take somebody who deals with anxiety as well as other brain issues and put them in a hospital setting, the anxiety goes through the roof. We are not capturing quality data, wasting our time. We've even found severely epileptic patients will go into a hospital for a four or five night stay and due to the anxiety and the stress and the adrenaline and the inability to sleep and not eating properly and just not relaxing, they will, their brain will fight off the seizure activity and they will have a calm, quiet brain and a wasted five nights in the hospital. Then on their way home from the hospital on the freeway, luckily that the spouse is driving, they've got a nice convulsive seizure going on in the passenger seat because their threshold just collapsed after that stay in the hospital. So it became an ineffective stay. Now, for those of you who think that sounds really dramatic, that happened to my daughter. 
after four nights in the hospital. And they forgot to be recording while we were in there. They didn't glance at the EEG, didn't record the data. So we stole four nights of her life. That was one of the big encouragements on getting into the EEG business when we realized it was time for the family to change courses and all of that. So anyway, um, it does happen. And the doctors have found that in the home where the patient is relaxed, does have the smell of their sheets and their pillow, the dog barking, the light coming in the window just right at sunset, the smell of mom's cooking coming from the kitchen, the right toys, the right atmosphere gets us a much more relaxed brain and much more close to normal brain activity during the normal living environment. And we capture, you know, great data that way. So our patients don't go to the hospital. Most of the doctors we work with will not put their patients in the hospital for overnight EEG unless they're a surgical patient and there's something really extreme uh, where they're not safe and they might be at risk at home, like reducing the medication in order to have a seizure. Um, so those kind of things we'll steer clear of. But other than that, um, many hospitals prefer the way that we do it now. And some hospitals are even trying to recreate what we do so that they take the extreme at-risk patients and put them in beds. And the patients that are able to go home, they will send them home with a, you know, an, a you know, piece of equipment that does something similar to what we do. Okay. And so you send people home with what? So we send people home wearing a cute little white cotton cap that keeps all of the electrodes nice and secure on the head. And then uh, those wires drop into a tiny purse or backpack that holds the recording device that captures the brain activity. It's a pretty indestructible device. So our, our patients go home and do most of their normal routine. Uh, adults will work from home, uh, you know, teens and, you know, other kids will do homework from home and basically bring home a full day's work so that it's more like a normal routine. Um, it works excellent for homeschoolers because we know mom's going to get the job done and, um, and we record and we get great content. We're also looking for some specific um, type of activity throughout the day. That would consist of hooking the kid up early in the morning or in the morning so that we get him fresh, awake, and alert. Then we get him with an active, busy brain, doing the homework, playing video games, watching TV, reading with family, playing with other siblings. Um, and that that we want to have some you know happy time and a little bit of agitated time. So we'll try to do transitions of tasks. Um, and get the kid to have a little bit of higher level of stress at some point, and then a bunch of calm time. And then towards the end of the day, of course, I need him to get tired, drowsy, starting to fall asleep, doing whatever it is your kids call sleep during the night while you're trying to steal some sleep. And then waking up in the morning and kind of rubbing the eyes and yawning and, and getting it together in the morning. And then after they've had a little bit of activity and they're wide awake in the morning, that's the time to generally disconnect after a 24-hour EEG. Um, and that gets us a lot of different aspects of that kid's normal routine. Um, and we're recording throughout the whole thing, both the brain scan as well as video, um, which is the second device that we send home. And that is basically a high performance baby monitor in a box. 
and you just roll it on into the house, plug it in. Um, it's got a high resolution, high definition camera. We're able to see the whole room, just like those of you who have a ring camera on the wall. Um, and, and basically we're watching the child's behaviors to see what they were doing. If we captured any staring spells, jerking, um, you know, pauses in behavior and things like that. I mean, I just think that's so amazing that you're able to bring all of that huge hospital stuff and make it into an itty bitty living space and exactly. put it in a backpack. I think that's just so amazing. Um, and when Andrew was hooked up, he thought it was the greatest thing ever that he got to, he got a new backpack and he got to carry around like this little TV thing. And I mean, he just thought it was- That's like only because I lied to him and I told him if he pushed the button three times, the astronauts would call him back. And <laughs> to the guy on mars but but uh, anything it takes to keep the kids compliant throughout the study we'll do it it works um okay now i know you have offices or have an office here in texas where else do you have offices so we started in irvine california and that's where our main office is and that's where we are the busiest um we have a, a very well-known pediatric uh, a biomed and autism doctor um, who's very well published and known in, in our area. And he's the one who kind of started us in the autism world 12 years ago. So Irvine is our headquarters and our busiest place. Um, that same doctor invited us to open up inside his large biomedical autism clinic in Melbourne, Florida. So that was our second office. And then we opened up in Frisco, Texas, when my family relocated out here a few years back. And just most recently, we opened up with um, another very famous biomed autism neurologist in Phoenix. So that is our, our fourth spot. And we are right now looking for a location in San Antonio. Amazing. I didn't know that. We go where the kids with special needs are, and we go to try to address the few little kids that we know about specifically. And then once we get there and we get our, you know, our boots in the mud, um, and start figuring out the landscape, then we go and try to build that practice. But we're generally getting drawn by a few really aggressive families that are coming from one doctor and, and, and that little group wants to try to change the world and we're all cool with that. So we jump in with them and try to change the world. And then once we're there, we figure things out rather than having a big business plan and trying to you know execute everything as per schedule, um, because that doesn't work in the world of autism. Yeah. We've got to be ready to jump and fly at any point. Well, I just think y'all are amazing. I admire y'all so much. I'm grateful that you've been faithful and being advocates, not only for your daughter, but for so many kiddos that struggle. So thank you. And thank you for sharing. I would love for you to tell people where they can find you. Yeah. So we are at EEG to go, just like when you get food to go. So EEGTOGO.com. And um, I will send you my PowerPoint so you could, you know, edit that up and add it to this. If you, you know, I know it's a podcast, so people are generally listening, um, but they can download that, that slideshow off your website if you want to host it there. Yeah, that'd be um, it's I'll very put the informative. Link. I'll put yeah. the link in the bottom of the show notes. And then okay. also, hopefully we can do a little quick presentation on YouTube as well. So sure. there and get more information. And that's about it. The other thing uh, I just, I, you know, I want to follow up with this piece. So, um, you know, you just said how amazing it is what we do and all of that. And I appreciate the compliment. Um, I try to be humble about it. And I also try to be honest. 
you know, this wasn't the career of choice. I, I didn't really, you know, decide one day, wow, I'm going to get up and and do this thing and, and, and you know, try to change my my career path and do EEGs. Um, kind of got bullied into a little bit. I, I um, you know, my family believes in prayer. It's that simple. And when our kid was waiting for surgery, we did a lot of prayers um, and made a lot of promises. So I, I basically, in my prayer, promised that if I could get my kid help, I will, you know, try to help the doctors that helped us and try to help the other people who helped us and try to help others who are not able to go and, you know, and, and get into battle and fight the fight. So um, a few months after my daughter's surgery, we took her surgeon out for a, a celebratory dinner and um, he sat across the table and he said, so are you guys happy with the outcome? And between the tears, we said, of course, we're happy with the outcome. Are you kidding? And he said, then I think you need to um, come up with a career change and figure out a way that you can give back to this epilepsy community that just saved your daughter. And I, I kind of don't know how I could say no. I mean, I, I prayed for it and I promised it. So how could I not deliver, right? So I said, well, okay. Being that I have no medical background and all I, you know, have done my whole life is manufacture and sell shoes. <laughs> it's not really a medical field, and I don't really know how I could give back to the epilepsy community. But if you figure it out, you tell me what to do, and I'm going to do it. So a couple of months went by, and I didn't really think much of it um, after that dinner. And that doctor called me up and invited me to attend the American Epilepsy Society meeting in San Diego which is, you know, for smart people, not for me. It's for doctors and 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 um, and educators. And I thought, well, you know, I'll go. I don't know what I'm going to do there, but I'll go with them. And I went as the guest and we got there and he basically said, I have some presentations to make and then I'm going to go hang out with a few of my friends. Why don't you go mingle in that, you know, industry area out there where all the vendors are selling, you know, seizure meds and, and other items and see if you can't figure out something there. And as I walked into that, you know, arena, um, one of the first vendors that caught my eye was a guy who had this robot looking device on his table. And I walked up to see what that, you know, device was. He had an amazing, um, really charming personality and accent. He He's from the UK and, um, you know, basically, you know, Sounded like Mr. French from Family Affair. He was captivating, very educational the way he spoke and very confident that he had just created um, just a groundbreaking revolutionary EEG recording system to keep people out of the hospital. And we discussed, you know, special needs kids. And in my prior career, I did a lot of special needs work. Um, being in the shoe business, I made orthotics and, you know, different types of prosthetics and braces to hold legs up and, and, and help kids walk better. And that had to do with the shoe business. And it led me to, a, you know, a whole clientele of kids with, you know, needs and autism. So I said, will this device benefit any kids with autism? And he said, funny, you should ask. And he was telling me about the results at that point and the data at that point 12 years ago was something like one in 100 kids with autism may suffer from a seizure. That's all been erased because unfortunately the, the new trajectory, as we know, you know, 
special needs and autism are in every house and and seizures are in you know more than half of those houses so anyway this young you know this gentleman simon and i hit it off i gave him some suggestions on how i would improve the system on the way that it would work in my opinion, better for families like mine who wasted days in hospitals before multiple times. And a month later, he called me and said, hey, you know, we revamped the product a little bit. We changed the way that it acquires the video. We took a lot of your suggestions and all of my engineers in, the Eng in England want to meet you. Um, and they don't understand how somebody who's not in the industry could break down the device and correct the device so easily when, you know, hundreds of professionals have viewed it and not really critiqued it the way that I did. So jump ahead a little bit. He called me up and said, I'm coming from England with the new prototype. I'm bringing one that you can beta test. And, you know, I jumped into a doctor's office, bought my first EEG machine uh, about 14 years ago. And after a year and a half, that doctor and I didn't really have the same mission anymore. So we popped out and opened our first office. And now here we are 12 years later, um, we've upgraded that system with the manufacturer about five times in 12 years. We now have 20 of those devices across the country. Um, and this machine is just, is just an amazing and it's changed my life and so many others as well. So it's a, uh, that's our story. Love that. Thank you for sharing that. I, I'm, especially encouraged by the piece of that you had no medical medical know-how and were able to help and kind of re-engineer that just from being a parent and being an advocate and having that lived experience. So that's encouraging to me. I think that the best advocates come from parents with kids with needs yeah. who have had doors slammed in their face because I'm guessing that most parents... They ask a couple questions, the door closes, they don't get their answers, they're going to search. You know, um, a few years back, a guy invented something called Google. <laughs> we don't have to stay home and listen to bad advice. We can search for good advice now. Um, not that we find great medical advice on Google, but we have the opportunity to accumulate information and sort through it. Um, and figure out what to keep and what to toss. And, and I think that um, that's the way that many parents are now getting educated and, and coming up with, uh, you know, the best sources of info and, and then culling that down to what works for their, their child patient. And, I, you know, I, I'm talking to so many people who have started their own genetic rare disease foundations because their child has no therapy listed for that mutation um, and is really striving for help. Um, and there are no answers. So if you can't get answers, doctors don't know, um, you've got to create your own information sources. And so these families are starting foundations, recruiting young doctors, researchers, or and, and other advocates to help build this, the steam. Um, and they are getting super educated and most have no medical background. So it is um, it is very encouraging to work with people who have created their own sources of education and have, um, you know, for the most part, self-taught. Yay, parents. That's amazing. 
Um, well, Brad, thank you. Thank you for coming on today and sharing your story and um, just educating us on what we need to know about epilepsy and seizures. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Hey, I'm so glad that you joined us today. If this episode blessed you at all, would you mind leaving a review or sharing with others? This, as you know, will help other mamas find us and in turn will bless them. Hey, thanks so much for trusting us with your time today.